three, two, one. Okay, thanks for joining us this week. Our guest from Lee County is the Judge Executive Chuck Caudell. Did I say that right? You did. All right, outstanding. Who's the, the Judge Executive out there in Lee County, also a Navy veteran. And since our topic this week is the 9-11 and the impact that it's had on America and American society for the past 20 years, it's very fitting uh, to speak to someone who was actually in New York on 9-11, so we'll, we'll get to that uh, shortly. Uh, or, or unless you want to, we wanted to just go ahead and start by, by sharing some of that experience with us. Uh, I'll leave it up to you. Well, however you want to do it, Jason. But, uh, yeah, um, I, you know, on 9-11, I was, uh, I had, uh, I was wrapping up my 20-year tour in the Navy, and I had a, uh, I had a, uh, I, was, I was actually in graduate school. I was at the uh, Actor Studio Drama School, and while I was there, I had a, uh, I, you know, I, I was wandering around minding my own business, and then uh, on my way to class, and as I walked around, uh, walked around the building, and looked down Broadway, I saw the second plane come through the building, because wow. uh, we had just got off the train at, at Penn Station, and a young girl walked by and and uh, said uh, that's the second plane that's going to be. We could see both uh, World Trade Centers burning. And I went on down to class, which was uh, midways down, uh, which was down on 12th Street. And uh, I, I said, well, we must be getting ready to go to war. And, said, I, and I still had two weeks in the Navy. And so what I did was I, call, I tried to call the base. But, of course, all the cell towers were on top of World Trade Center. So... Uh, uh, it took me a while, but I finally got through the base and said, uh, "Hey, I'll get back to the base as soon as I can." And the captain said, "Well, XO, you're, uh, <laughs> you're you know, you've you've been gone since July. You're at your relief is here, and then they haven't canceled any leave yet." So uh, I sat there and said, "Okay." Um, and I, uh, it took me about uh, about twelve hours to get back to my home in Central Jersey. And when I got back, I got on the phone and. Uh, I called the logistics squadron, which was uh, on the base, and I just reminded them that I was still an active duty uh, commander, and they called me to come in to uh, coordinate the uh, activation of the hospital ship Comfort, and I was the commander-in-chief Atlantic representative for the last two weeks I was in the Navy uh, for the Navy's support of Operation Noble Eagle in, uh, in New York City. Did they stop loss you? And for folks who don't know what that is, uh, they did. They did this in the Air Force. For folks that in 9/11 uh, in that time frame, those who already had either retirement plans in place or were getting ready to, the Air Force for some career fields initiated what we call stop loss, which means because there was an attack on the country and we went to war, that your retirement was effectively canceled and that you were now going to be on extended active duty and, until they determined they didn't need you anymore. Did they? Did they do that in the Navy? I, I never did find out. Well, there were there were some groups, some uh, ratings that they did do that, like Master at Arms. However, I was part of a group. I was a, I was a senior officer, surface warfare officer, and there were a lot of us. And so I I basically they didn't do stop loss on me. What I had to do was 
was sent a letter to the bureau saying, "Listen, I will I will stay on active duty as long as you need me to uh, if we're going to war." Because at that point, like everybody else in America, my I anticipated we were getting ready to uh, to go to war. I mean, the carriers had been deployed to protect the coastline, and in my vision, as a logistics expert at the time, I figured that they would be setting up a logistics head somewhere overseas so that we could uh, we could bring in Navy assets. But uh, it was interesting how quickly that turned around. Uh, within two weeks, which is how much time I had left, what had happened was the uh, the carriers had gone back into port. We saw that this was this was not going to be a steady battle, and so uh, when I got to, I went back to the squadron right after Comfort left port because uh, that she wasn't needed in New York City, and I asked the squadron. I said, "Okay, I've ex- I've voluntarily extended for six months. What are we going to do now?" And they said, "Well, we don't have anything to do." Uh, you can stay here and inspect ships. I said, well, who's going to inspect them if I'm not here? And they pointed to the senior chief. He said, well, he usually does it. And I said, well, what's he going to do? So, well, he'll assist you. I said, okay. tell you what, <laughs> tell you what, why don't I just, I'll just continue on my retirement. If we go to war, you guys know where I'm at and bring me back on. So the day I was set to retire, I just, uh, I walked out the door and said, call me if you need me. So in New York City, if you, if you were close enough to see the planes, did you did was there any debris in that area? Did you have to take shelter? Or I mean, you, you said you went back to class, on, but maybe you were far enough away that you weren't in the direct directly affected zone. Well, yeah, Twelfth Avenue, which is where is where the new school was located. I'm not Twelfth Avenue, Twelfth Street. We were we were well away from the World Trade Center area. However, like most of New Yorkers at the time, the second we saw it, we started racing towards that way to see if we could help. Uh, and, and that's what everybody did. Uh, luckily, I mean, the, I got to give I got to give credit to the uh, New York Police and Fire Department. What they said, what they got the perimeter set up. They said very wisely, if you're going in there, you're creating more of a problem than help. And so, sure. uh, what what the rest of us did was right after that. Of course, we're all sitting there saying, "Well, no, what do we do?" And so. All the hospitals are saying we're going to need blood, and all of a sudden people just start lining up on the streets of Manhattan, just uh, hundreds of people standing outside hospitals, and it was so quick that it was very that uh, hospitals would come out and they would say, "What kind of blood do you have? Thank you, we've got enough people. Thank you, we've got enough." And of course, they were trying to keep typo, and then it was just real interesting to see. Uh, I'll never forget this one young girl, purple hair, tattoos, and and uh, the policeman was, I walked up to the policeman, I said, I said, listen, they say they don't need us here. Are there other hospitals where we might be able to get to where they might need blood? Or is this the same way everywhere? And uh, he and I started talking. And I said, uh, maybe there's a bus you can set up. So he called the bus. Well, this young girl who, uh, you know, as punk as you come, all of a sudden she goes in, she gets a, she gets a, a, a store nearby to donate uh, pens and cardboard, and she writes out, buses on the way, and she's standing there lining people up and saying, okay, if you want to give blood, we're going to hop on this bus, we're going to go to, we're going to, go to another hospital. And uh, <laughs> I'm sitting there just, I just marveled at how quickly she adapted to the situation, took control, and, and moved on out. And that's, you know, that's and uh, that's one of my stories. I say, never judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a pr- sort of pretty quick thinking there. Yeah, it was. She, I was, it was. she was a very impressive young lady, and she probably mid-20s. Well, on the other side of that, um, I was a first lieutenant just starting my career in the Air Force. 
uh, out at uh, Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City, and I was assigned to the uh, 964th Airborne Air Control Squadron, which is a, an operational flying squadron with AWACS, and we actually had an AWACS jet over Washington, D.C. on 9-11, uh, flying a training mission. And of course, when the events of the of the ground on the ground, you know, filtered up, they, they canceled the training exercise and went what we call real world. You, I'm sure you know that. And uh, they, they took up a defensive orbit over the White House. And true story, the guy who was flying that jet, that was that was actually his first flight as an aircraft commander. He had been certified. He got his cert the day before. He got his cert as an AC on the 10th of September, the day before. Uh, and that was his that was his first flight. And when he was up there, you know, we, we back at headquarters or where I was at the squadron, I mean, we, we had the, the radios on and we were listening. And the FAA basically told him, you know, you have to land. And it, I, to keep this at a family level, his, his response was basically the, the heck with that. Uh, we're, we're not landing. Uh, and so <laughs> later on, they decided that was that was a good thing. He stayed up there. But ordinarily, when you say no to the FAA, when you land, you know, they, they take your wings away. <laughs> Um, right. But that day being what it was, he ended up getting accommodation for it because that, that was good thinking under 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 pressure. And it was the right thing to do because they needed uh, the eyes in the sky up there to uh, to help out and uh, to see what was going on. That was a long day for those guys. They had flown from Oklahoma City to D.C. up to Chicago on a training, then back to D.C. for another after refueling for another training circuit. And that was when uh, when 9-11 took place. So, right. and then of course, back at headquarters, the Colonel, my, my boss, the commander, he had us all line up in the hallway at attention and basically said, we're going to war. Uh, I'll never forget. He, he ended up being a two-star general before he retired, but, but that time he was Lieutenant Colonel. And he said, you know, there's, there's a lot of institutions that our country turns to in a time like this. And I guarantee you the United States military is number one on that list. So, so this is what you train for. We're going to war. And Within three weeks, their squadron had started getting ready for the first wave of deployments. We, we were one of the first group um, to head over to what used to be a classified location, uh, not in Afghanistan, but we were flying missions to Afghanistan from that base uh, right. much earlier than the public ever ever knew about it at that time. This was in October of, of 2001. So, yeah, I, I understand the, the having a, you know, a sort of a very direct tie to that day. It's, it's for some folks, and, and like unfortunately, the young folks who were killed in action in Afghanistan just a few weeks ago, many of them were either just barely born or, or were very young, at a very young age when that took place. So they probably had no living memory of the day itself, uh, although I'm, I'm sure they've heard the stories and, and read the history of it. it. It's just sort of amazing that you got folks deploying now who were, who were born after 9-11 took place. Oh, well, I mean, I just a few years ago, I was sitting there and I realized that that the kids born at the time where I with this realization were, were as separated from 9-11 as I was from World War Two. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I'm going, oh, because to me, I mean, growing up, World War Two was was ancient history. Yeah, well, exactly. And so, yeah. And, and but, but, you know, I mean, for me, 9-11 is, is still current events, even though it's been a, more than a couple of decades now. No, I feel that way too. And I read an interesting uh, piece by Stephen Cole, who's a, a, an author who wrote a book called Ghost Wars. In fact, he's written several books. But anyway, his comment that bears on this discussion was it, it's easier to explain why and how 9-11 happened to the United States than it is to explain the response to it. Um, and I, I think that's just a, a pretty accurate comment because it, it reveals you know, how, much this, how much that day really did change the country. Um, it changed the course of the of the nation's history. You know, for better or worse, that's you know, a matter of, of opinion. 
and, and debate, but it, that it changed everything is probably not open to discussion. I, I feel like it did. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but it sure felt like it. Well, I, I agree. It did change because, uh, for the, I mean, for the first time since 1945, well, since 1941, our nation was was attacked in a very dramatic way. Of course, I remember in the 90s when the first World Trade Center attempt was made because I was actually living in Jersey City and, uh, and had probably run across uh, the guys who were driving the, the trucks to, uh, to the World Trade Center when they tried to blow it up because they lived in Jersey City just down the block from it. Uh, so I remembered that. But, I mean, it, it, World War II was the last time we would had a major attack which did major damage like that. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think what we saw was uh, our nation saw or became like a lot of Europe was that attack can happen anytime, and uh, it can be very successful. I think it showed for us just how just how vulnerable we are because it's something that we can kind of ignore, and we do. I think that's human nature is we we like to find comfort. But uh, on that day, all of a sudden, the, the best laid plans of my men went awry. Uh, they were incredible. They were more successful than anybody could have imagined, whether it was exceptional planning, incredible luck, a mixture of the two. What happened was that uh, this is a major attack on American soil, which woke a huge number of us up. I mean, it's stuff that, that I had been thinking about that, that – many of us in the military had been thinking about the time, especially those of us in New York, because I had been in the New York area for about half of my Navy career. And I had spent two tours on ammunition ships, and these ships carry tens of thousands of tons of ammunition, hundreds of thousands of gallons of fuel. And there's a big pier that sticks out in New York Harbor next to Sandy Hook, and that is specifically designed for these ammunition ships to sit out there, and if something does go wrong, it won't hurt civilians. And we were always dealing with what would happen if a boat came and blew up on a ship? What would happen if a truck came down a pier and did that? What would happen if we had a sniper on a boat? What would happen if a small plane flew into one of the ships? Uh, you know, we were with NC, with NCIS, with uh, everything else, Gordon. We were always worried about those issues. And, and I and, understand why. I mean, they're, they're essentially, I mean, those are essentially soft targets. I mean, yeah, well. That's right. They, they look like soft targets now, and the the key to that is we tried to we tried to make them harder targets, and uh, and we did. Uh, you know, there's a lot of all kinds of deception things to make something look soft, and then makes other things look hard, and then actually be hard. But you're right; those were concerns, and uh, and we had all we had talked about small planes hitting one of those ships. We'd also talked about small planes hitting one of the large buildings. Now, none of us. In, I don't remember a single discussion of us talking about using commercial aircraft to do it. And so, I, I'm, and I'm not saying that it wasn't discussed, but I wasn't in those discussions. And I, I know that many of us who were talking about it immediately after, we were completely shocked and surprised at how successful they were at using commercial aircraft. You know, when one of the things I remember hearing um, when I was still stationed in Oklahoma, I had a chance to listen to uh, their, one of their former, con former congressmen out there, J.C. Watts. And I think he put it about as well as I've, I've ever heard it. 
because uh, he was just talking about that very thing about why the the 9/11 attacks were so successful, and how how everybody really didn't see that style of attack ever ever coming, or if they even theorized it, they they thought the chances of it really happening are close to zero. And, and what he said was, in a free society, if a person doesn't mind dying, they can do a lot of damage. Uh, and I think we saw that uh, the truth of that played out in 9/11. You know, when you're dealing with an attacker that doesn't mind dying, you know, when they get up in the morning knowing for a fact that they're not coming back from this mission, that changes the way that security uh, measures normally would work on them. They don't work anymore, uh, and and that was the case on that day. I mean, no one would have thought it would that it, you would you would just want to commit suicide that way, but they did. And I think that's one of the reasons why the, the standard security thinking and standard security measures just weren't effective, because they're designed to stop someone who doesn't want to die. Uh, but when you, yeah, yeah, right. when, when you, well, and what we saw in Flight 92 was once the people on the on the aircraft realized we're going to die, they said that, that changed that changed the security situation for them, and that's why that's why it didn't make it back to its target. Which probably would have been the White House, I think, is, is pretty clear. That's where they were headed. Yeah, either the White House was it the White House or was it the was it the was it the the, the Senate? It, I can't remember. It's really impossible to know for sure, but the, the odds of it being one of those two are probably pretty high. Yes, I agree. And, 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 and the fact that they were so successful, but still did you know so much less damage than they, than they could have done. In spite of the fact they were incredibly successful at using their weapons. Well, I read just this morning in, in a Washington Post piece that apparently only one wedge of the Pentagon had been reinforced uh, just for a potential terrorist bomb-style incident from like a car bomb. And the plane that struck the Pentagon actually hit that one wedge that had been reinforced. And the engineers said had they hit any of the other sections, it would have went all the way through the building and the damage would have been three times as much. Yeah, well, and, and and hitting the Pentagon, and even with the deaths that were there, not to not to do more damage to command and control for the for the military is just incredible. It really is. It, it, it's astonishing, and, and even when you think back on it now, that that uh, I mean, we were first. I remember the first rumor we heard on on DC was that there was a car bomb at, at State Department or something, and then that, of course we we were watching television like everybody else. And and uh, we had those in the in the squadron. I mean, it, the military doesn't have like the the Hollywood version of the secret command center where all information is instantly accessible. It's just so far from reality. Uh, it just it, it's not even close. That's that's just not how it works. Um, you know, we have TVs in the command room just like uh, everybody else does, and we, we we heard that rumor too. And then we, of course later on found out it was another plane. Well, I mean, that's what, and then, then of course the, the the rumors that the Air Force had to had to shoot down the plane going towards the the White House, and in New York we were sitting there that day. I mean, there were. It's interesting. I, I was actually in, in graduate school to be an actor, and there were several of us who prior military, and so we come walking out, and you know we're now all of a sudden we're back in high alert, walking around looking between cars because we're thinking. Okay, we don't want to get in big groups because there could be car bombs going off and things like that. And and it went it, it, four or five hours later. You know, we calmed down a little bit, but for that initial one, we were we were scared because um, we had no idea what was coming. And I think that's a good example. And, and if you just extend that out on a larger scale, you can sort of understand the impact that it had on the nation. Because at a national level, we had the very same emotional type of reaction, and so did our government. And you can see from then, since then, uh, the changes that have been that have been coming after that were mostly a result of that initial emotional response, 
And in, at the government level, anyway, I think it just kind of went on. It never stopped. Uh, whereas you guys, you know, being trained professionals, you know, calm down after a little while. Folks who don't have that training or, or background uh, but still have to be in charge of making policies never never got to that point. I think they just continue to, to respond as though there were threats everywhere. And uh, the, you see the result of that today. Well, I, I agree. And unfortunately, you know, and of course, I, you and I have never sat there with that, with that steady input from CIA, NSA, military intelligence and everything else. I, the, the people sitting up at the command, at the highest echelons of command, do see uh, probably far more than, than I saw. And, and I, you know, I kind of, I, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I told the I told the governor when he came to Lee County after our flooding. I I, I said this honestly to him. I looked at him. I said, "Man, I'm glad I'm not you." <laughs> uh, I said, "I am." I mean, you, you're dealing with so much more than I'm dealing with, even though I'm dealing with a flood right now. But I'm glad I'm not you. Uh, but but I look up there, and you know, all of a sudden, when. Everybody and everybody does the uh, after 9/11. You know, we had all the 9/11 commitment like that. We have the failure of the FBI. What was the connection? We create this whole Homeland Security group that comes out after it, and then and um, we tend to blame individuals. When and I know the Air Force went through this, and they went through. We had this thing called total quality management, total quality leadership. Oh yeah. And and I think what I think what we often forget is we often forget that what our training was, let's look at processes. Problem is usually processes. And if you can fix a process, people want to do things well. But I think after the attack on 9-11, the, the nation was in such shock that you know we were focused on what, who, who's to blame. And then once, uh, once we had a target, and that happened to be Osama bin Laden, once we had that target, and once we knew where he was, the question was, all right, is this revenge? Is it protecting the nation? I think that all got mixed together in there. And then when, uh, and I mean, I know I was, I, even though I was retired, I mean, I was calling up saying, reminding everybody, hey, I'm still good. I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm still type A, class A, ready to rock and roll. I mean, I was ready to go to war. And so I know a lot of those younger guys. They were ready to, I mean, the guys in uniform, just like I was when it was me, you know, during Desert Storm. Oh, yeah, back at Squadron Headquarters, I remember we we, we were arguing with each other over who was going to get to go on the first deployment. Uh, I never saw any actual fistfights break out, but it came close a couple of times. Uh, and, 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 you know, the more, the more senior guys at the time would just come by and say, listen, you guys, this isn't going to be over in six months. It's not going to be over in a year. You're going to get your chance, more than one probably, so, so just relax. Okay, if you don't get yeah. to go on the first deployment, there's going to be another one. Uh, I get the hundred percent chance. Yeah, uh, and, and, and and that's that's what it showed. And 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 once we got it, once we got in there, you know, we're dealing we're dealing with people in our in our free society. We got we have a, such a broad spectrum of opinions about war that people can openly discuss and talk about without fear of reprisal. That uh, well, we you know that now the comparisons to Vietnam and everything else were just nat just naturally came out of it, and so you know now you're I, I hate to say this it was almost like that's when that's when our country really started to divide again. 
Yeah, and, and I think the events of the last couple of weeks, particularly in Afghanistan and, and the withdrawal from Kabul and the way that happened, has sort of brought that back to the fore of the national discussion and the national discourse. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that discussion will continue for some time, and, uh, and, and rightly so. Yeah, oh, yeah, but us going in, they talk Vietnam, and us coming out, they talk Vietnam, and I can understand why. Yeah, exactly. Except you know now we're, we're where that generation lived through Vietnam. Our generation has lived through you know Afghanistan and Iraq and, and a few other places that were uh, indirectly related to that. To that, but uh, yeah. So I guess my next question is, or I was what I was thinking was just, does us withdrawing from Afghanistan does that formally signal the end of what we used to call the the war on terrorism? I, I don't know the answer to that. I have thoughts. You, you might have some, but I mean, that's just kind of the question I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, now that we've left, does that mean that that portion of our of our operations are officially over? Well, boy, wouldn't it be great if, if that was the case? But yeah. what I see, what I see is it's like when it's like when President Bush said, uh, you know, we we won. When you stand on the deck of the aircraft carrier, you know, we've won. The war is over, right? Uh, half the world said, "What's well, not over?" So, though I would love to say, why well, yes, the war on terror is over. Uh, I think if you're a thinking person, what you realize is that though there are ideological issues in play anytime there's a war, one of the things we have to consider is there are strategic reasons we do things. Uh, you know, if uh, our country right now, as long as people can hop in their car, drive where they want to, gas price stays low, uh, everybody's pretty happy. If all of a sudden, you know, gas prices shoot through the roof, if all of a sudden we're, uh, we get we get people who get upset here and maybe not do a terror act along the lines of a 9-11, but uh, along the lines of, say, a uh, what, they, what they had in California where the two people shot up a, a party, right? Yeah. Then what, then what I see potentially happening here is the strategic and the emotional will get mixed in again. And, and it's not a one-sided event i mean i i we you and i though we can't say with 100 percent they kind of figure what we might do as a society here because we we're raising it we understand how people think but you you look in afghanistan where what 50 percent of the people there are like under 15 I, I think that's the number um but it's a very young society that's like a bunch of teenagers 20 and 30 year olds were on the show and and I think of how I was back then. Even even in my 30s, things were black and white, right and wrong. And if all of a sudden you get in your head that uh, that America is the is is our problem, and if somebody's smart and says let's let's make it their problem, and you know, people can be manipulated. Uh, groups of people can be manipulated. I see the potential for another terrorist attack coming here. And I see the potential for us being pushed back into a war. And uh, I, I would, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I guess one thing I would say is, you know, we may not be able to say that, and those are valid points, and I don't think we can say that uh, simply withdrawing from Afghanistan can, can really constitute the formal end uh, of the war on terrorism. But I think we could say that it represents the start of a new phase in that operation. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, one of the things that we have today that we did not have on 9-11 or even in the few years after that was the drone capability. We didn't have that. Uh, in 2001, we were still just experimenting with those things. We, we did not have the precision or the numbers or the systematic capability to deploy those anywhere in the world. 
And, and we have that today. And, and I, I bring that up simply because the recent drone strike against the uh, Islamic State in Afghanistan, which is way out in the eastern part of the country, by the way, um, it's a pretty remote area. You know, we don't we don't fly those drones from Afghanistan. We we can we fly them from other places. Uh, it, it, there's several different locations. Al Udeed and uh, Qatar is one of them, uh, and they can be controlled from from here in the states. So what I'm saying is, we still have the capability to strike targets uh, in Afghanistan and places like that with a precision that that would never have been possible without ground troops before. So now we can continue that those operations. Uh, with with drones instead of ground troops. Now, whether or not we should is another question, but we certainly, I think, in the foreseeable future, will continue that. That that drone strike against the Islamic State is not was not isolated. That's probably there's probably a lot more. That was just the one the public was told. Um, but that capability is very robust. It's very precise. And and whether they admit it or not, terrorist groups uh, like the Islamic State and Al Qaeda, what's left of them, are scared of our drones. They're afraid of them because they can't see them, they can't hear them, they can't stop them, but they, we can get to them anywhere. Um, and so I think that's a tool that will probably be used more frequently uh, in the coming months and years than they than they have been even in the past. Oh, I think I, uh, what you just said, I think everything you said is, is incredibly valid. Uh, because you're right. Uh, when I was getting out drones, I mean, I could. When I first came into the Navy, I remember we had this the, on, on the ship that I my first ship was a World War II destroyer. Uh, they had just taken what they called dash off, and this was a this was a, a drone helicopter which took torpedoes out to drop on submarines. Um, and the, the history for those things was they take off, fly over the horizon. That's the last you see of them. Uh, but you're right that the game has changed. The capabilities that we have now to strike silently from anywhere in the world uh, are so much more robust than they were when I was there. And you're right; we don't need boots on the ground like we used to. I think uh, during the uh, the first war around the Aegean, where uh, where we were going into Kosovo and things like that, when uh, when President Clinton was sitting there saying, "We don't need boots on the ground; we're going to use air," even before we had this capability, I think I, I think that ushered in. Uh, kind of what the Air Force was saying in the in the fifties and sixties, we're not going to need ground troops because of the Air Force. But I think we're seeing now the capability of doing surgical strikes, and I think that is going to it has changed the way we fight wars. Yeah, and I, yeah, you're right. And I don't we need to be there. No, we don't. Yeah, and I, and I don't know if civilians really appreciate how personal of a weapon that is. For the drone operators, uh, it's very—it's a very personal experience. And what I'm—what I mean by that is, you can see what somebody's wearing, you can see their facial expression. I mean, it is not uh, like a video game where there's just a little dot on the screen. Uh, you can see everything. I mean, you can see very detailed parts. Uh, it's it, just—it's just very personal. And so when they pull that trigger, it's—it's it's not like a video game. You—you you see the person that you're about to hit. Uh, or persons, uh, even even if they're you know armed adversaries carrying weapons or whatever they're doing, um, it's a it's a very intimate type of, of uh, operation. Even though it's done remotely, uh, it, it's still very personal. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, and I, I agree. I think, uh, and and unfortunately, uh, reality uh, what we get told as uh, what collateral damage is uh, may be true, may not be true. But I'm, I agree with you. The ability to perform a surgical strike with the uh, current technology is so far superior to what we've known in the past that uh, it's, you're right. It, it's, it's almost, it's almost reached the per reached the level of a personal, uh, you know, personal interaction, soldier to soldier. Only this time a soldier sitting somewhere else 
and his weapon is could be thousands of miles away. Yeah, these are some of these are by name strikes. I mean, there's not it's not necessarily a structure or location. It's a name. There is a person or persons that are being targeted. So it's very specific. Um, and, and most of the warheads that the drones deploy are much smaller than what we drop with conventional weapons from the from fighters or bombers. I mean, you know, the 500 pounders or 1,000 pounders level a city block. Uh, the drone warheads, five six pound warhead, it's much smaller. It, it's not going to be able to do that much damage. It hits. It's got a much smaller kill radius. So I mean, again, you know, whether or not people think we should be doing that is a discussion that that, that ought to be had. But the fact is, it's just a different kind of weapon uh, than something we've seen prior to uh, 9/11 and the aftermath of 9/11. And now we have to worry about the fact that they turned against us. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's that's a new reality. Yeah, the drones ain't that hard to figure out. I mean, they're not that complicated. The the, the support infrastructure for them is a little more uh, involved, but just flying a drone, I mean, you know, you can go down to Radio Shack or uh, go to Amazon and, and get one of those. So, yeah, and then they've been used in, in a number of different conflicts uh, in other places in Central Asia. Uh, but but just to, to wrap up the nine eleven, I, I guess you know the question now is uh what now i mean what what happens here we, we're, we're 20 years out we're withdrawing from afghanistan what does that mean for the country what does that mean for the military um because terrorist groups haven't gone away they've certainly changed and, and they've been severely impacted by by the war on terrorism or whatever folks want to call it um, but they still have the capability to to launch attacks we still have a capability to respond um i just wonder you know what, what that's going to look like in the coming years yeah, you know, I there's a there's a there's a wonderful little thing. You know, where do you, where do you fight the war? And you and you see national belief on this change over the years, over the decades. The best way to fight a war is stop a war from from beginning. And you stop the war from beginning by sitting in the country and providing a stability to where the young people growing up aren't aren't hopeless that they that they that they want to rebuild their country instead of blame another country for the problems that's one way the other way is you know you sit there you you reinforce everything around your country and say okay we're gonna we're gonna firmly control anybody comes here we're gonna protect you know we're gonna protect the border and i don't think there is a i don't think there is a one one answer fits all i i don't uh simply because we there you know how do you how do you sit there and judge what how another culture is going to respond and how do you how do you control the message that you're giving to them i mean we we in our nation debate hotly and passionately about issues that most other people don't even have to deal with because they're dealing with far more serious things in their lives but you know we're passionate we and we look at each other a lot of times and say well i don't see how you can think that way well, there's no way we can sit there and figure out how somebody in China or somebody in, in Afghanistan is going is, is looking at issues, especially if we've never been, you know, especially if we've if we've never been in the situation where those people are. Like, you know, in the United States, um, not having health care is very different than not having health care in Afghanistan. <laughs> You know, it's very different than not having health care in Africa. Uh, you know, freedom of speech is very different here in the United States than it is anywhere else in the world. So, you know, I, when I look at that, I go, okay, uh, what do we do now, you know? Um, I, I guess but, I would say, um, you know, 
9-11 changed, or, or not, rather 9-11 put security as sort of the number one issue for the nation. As, certainly in the aftermath and, and to a lesser extent in the years that, that followed, even as time went on, pretty much national security was, was the number one thing that, that the government was focused on, elections were focused on, and, and even from time to time, though they, they the citizens in general kind of moved on, like you said, to their private lives in other times, it was still an overriding concern. And now I feel like, you know, we have an opportunity here uh, not to diminish uh, our capacity to to, uh, do national defense, but rather to shift the focus a little bit away from having uh, having defense be the number one issue. And perhaps we need to look for something else to be a number one issue. And I would recommend that that number one issue be justice. Uh, not just in criminal justice, but economic justice, social justice, because the underlying, if you dig down, and this is one of the things we learned from from 20 years of, of being engaged in Iraq and Afghanistan and doing operations on terrorism, if you dig down far enough, you're going to find uh, that underneath the belief system itself, there are root causes in people's lives that, that motivated them to embrace those beliefs, uh, that motivated them to join an organization. So while the belief itself is absolutely a problem, there are also conditions, uh, living conditions, where those folks are that convince them that that belief was the right way to go. And if you take those conditions away, it makes the belief a lot less appealing. And so you take away uh, some of the recruits and some of the momentum that terrorist organizations have been able to gain. So I would hope we think about as a nation maybe shifting away from a number one focus on, on national security to, to focusing on, on justice. And two, I would hope that we get rid of the 1% doctrine because it's been a disaster. Uh, the 1% doctrine being if there's a 1% chance something might happen, we have to treat it as an absolute certainty. Well, what you get with that is everything becomes a top priority, which means nothing is. Uh, so we, it really hurt our ability to intelligently prioritize the real threats that are out there. Uh, and there's, there's ways to do that. You know, there's categories of threats. There's threats that are just sort of a nuisance. There's threats that can cause disruptions like to air travel or, or uh, commercial uh, enterprise. There's threats that can be transformative like regime change in Egypt during the Arab Spring. And there's threats that can be more like uh, on the apocalyptic level, I guess, if you want to put it that way, such that uh, the world saw you know, in World War I when entire empires were destroyed. Uh, but we need to regain our ability to discern those different levels of threats rather than just responding to all of them as though they were existential. Because I think if we, one thing, another lesson we've learned is that Trying to sustain uh, an effort against uh, an endless array of existential threats will eventually just bankrupt the country, uh, in addition to uh, causing us to compromise our, the values that we believe in. At some point, you're going to have to do it. And I know a lot of people believe we already have, and, and those arguments, I think, have, uh, have a lot of merit, uh, whether it was torturing detainees or many of the other things that were done in the name of the war on terrorism. So I, I hope that we would rethink that and, and take this opportunity on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 to, to reconsider that and maybe find a better way uh, ahead in the future. I think that's great. Uh, and I agree with you. I, justice is a wonderful thing. I think the thing that we are always going to struggle against and that we're going to battle is what is justice? And what is what is your existential threat—I'm sorry. Your existential threat might be my real threat, uh, and I mean we, we're seeing it in the debates in our country right now over COVID and vaccines. I mean we've got a significant portion of, of our nation that absolutely has no trust that the governments tell them the truth, and that's a frightening thing to me. I'm going to be honest with you. It's almost. So it's, having, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, so. So if so, how do I convince? If I can't convince people I grew up with 
that you can trust the government. How do we convince Afghanis that uh, trust? How do you you should trust us? And especially, and then right now there's a there, there's a whole bunch of them leaving Afghanistan just as fast as they can because they absolutely feel abandoned by us that we that we gave up on them. So and that, and unfortunately that's just the reality we live in is we don't live in an ideal world where what I say is I can always deliver exactly what I say. Yeah, no, the, the trust issue. You're absolutely right. That, that's 100 percent true. And 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 you know, the government has has misled the public about uh, the war on terrorism. They've lied about Afghanistan, or and to be more precise, some have lied. Others have simply ignored the facts. Uh, so I, I would say there's really those are two types of you know we we've known for a while that there's been massive corruption in Kabul and that the regime in, in Afghanistan was probably not going to last because of that corruption. The army, the special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction, which is spelled out S I G A R, they call it SIGAR. Uh, SIGAR has been putting out reports for over ten years that there's been epidemic corruption in Kabul and that it's going to be a threat to the uh, Afghan regime. So that isn't news to anybody that's ever read a SIGAR report. Those are delivered to Congress every year for the past decade. And what did they do with them? They ignored them. Uh, they ignored them because they knew voters were ignoring it, and so it wasn't a priority. And um, and so in that sense, it's, it's not a terrible surprise. I can't really say that, that folks in Afghanistan are, are t- should be too surprised that the Taliban is going to come back. They've been resurgent for a while. I do think it's terrible, tragic, and unfortunate that, that everybody didn't get out. And, that, of course, the way the withdrawal was done was absolutely unacceptable. I, I think it was terrible. Um, and, and I think it'll be some time before we're able to figure out exactly why that was. Uh, there's probably never a neat, clean way to to do it, but there, I I can't believe that that we couldn't do better than that, uh, than than what we saw in the last couple of weeks. I agree, uh, and, and that's just, and of course, you and I are separated. I'm I'm separated by two decades from being part of the discussion, and you're not separated quite as much. As, and of course, we don't know everything. However, based on just how you know we carry out military enterprises, I mean, I look at. I look at what the Air Force did, what the what the embassy people did, what the people, what the thing on the ground, what they did was heroic. They were placed in an impossible situation, as as the young warriors often are, by the people sitting back in D.C. and they were spotted like champions. Uh, unfortunately, I I'm like you. I like even though I don't know everything, I can't believe there couldn't be a better way to do what what happened. No, I agree with that. Of course, one one last thing I wanted to mention was, you know, having been, you know, we essentially turned the airport there in Kabul into into a fortress, uh, but we had, you know, five or six thousand armed uh, military personnel around the perimeter guarding it. But I can tell you that having been deployed to an even larger airfield in Iraq, where we had three or four times that many armed personnel and, and rockets and missiles, jets, helicopters. Uh, blast walls that were 15 feet high. I mean, it, it, it was a fortress in every sense of the word. And yet, even all of that security did not deter uh, folks from, from attacking us. We were attacked every single day. And, and occasionally, some of those attacks proved effective, whether they were just lobbing rockets and mortars over the fence or, or speeding up to the gate with a, a huge improvised explosive device to blow a hole in it so guys on the ground could run through and, and try to shoot at us. And all of that happened. Uh, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is for civilians to, to, to take away is just because you have military personnel around the perimeter doesn't mean that your enemies won't attack you. Um, you know, back to the point J.C. Watts made, if they're, if they're ready to die, if they got up that morning and they are no kidding, they've decided that today's the day, man. Today's it. They're not coming back from this mission. They know it. They accept it. They embrace it. Honestly, there's nothing we can do to stop them. There really isn't. Uh, we can get some of them, but we can't get all of them. And some of them are going to be able to do damage, just like we saw in Kabul. We saw that in Iraq, 
And we saw it again, unfortunately, tragically last week, you know, in Afghanistan. But that's that's the nature of, of some enemies that you're dealing with. It is. I mean, if you're willing to die, willing to die for what you what you believe, you, you're a you're a you're a weapon in your sense. That's they exactly are, right. and then the normal security measures, which would scare anybody with with a ra- who's thinking rationally away, doesn't work on somebody who who's ready to die. That that doesn't mean anything to them. Five thousand guys, they don't care. They just care that they get right. close enough to take out the fifteen or twenty that they've been told to take out. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that that tactic uh, in a military sense uh, still remains an effective one. Well, yeah, that, that's all you can do. You're right. All you can you you have to react to what they're doing right now. And uh, and if you're if you're not, it's just like the kamikazes of World War Two. It uh, is. It's very similar. <laughs> but I would say I guess I'm I guess I'm thankful now that 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 uh, that our forces are out of there, and because I don't I don't think the continued ground presence served any any purpose anymore. I mean. We we did we did identify and either kill or imprison everyone who was involved in 9/11. So you know, in a very narrow military sense, um, we accomplished a mission in, in Afghanistan. Of course, we, we failed miserably and completely at any any sense of uh, nation building or, or creating a democracy there. That that was probably never going to happen anyway, and, and certainly didn't. Uh, so 20 years ago, the Taliban was in charge. Now here we are, 20 years later, the Taliban is back in charge. Um, we'll see if it's the same group. If they've really changed, I doubt it. They say they have. I don't really believe it, um, but I guess we're going to find out. Well, yeah, I agree with you, and I and and you know it's funny because I I remember having discussions after nine eleven with some of my contemporaries, and and I and because I was in an academic environment, this some I actually said there were some philosophical some philosophy people there too, who were you know philosophy professors, and and there was one of the discussions said now what if. That instead of them crashing the planes in the building, all these guys are sitting there and said, and gotten right to the point, and then right before they did that, had handed everything back over to the pilots and said, "Okay, take us home." Uh, what would the, how would that have changed the equation? And you know, long, long, and well into the evening discussing this. Was the, would the possibility have been? Because at that point, you know, we had we were kind of tired. Of, we were getting tired of war. We were getting tired of, of fighting. Uh, the military at that point was, you know, wasn't national security wasn't the the front burner issue. Uh, but all of a sudden, you know, if they had done that, the debate would have been why. You know, then we would have had what twenty one terrorists sitting there who are now being treated as criminals in court saying this is why it is worth this is why we feel it's worth dying for this uh and i think they could they, there could have been a significant shift in how america would have approached this if they had picked different tactics so i think like anything uh, how we respond to future issues is going to be very determined very much determined by how other people deal with us because uh, I know, you know, again, the mine was a military mindset at the time. You know, we chose not to hit Osama bin Laden. We didn't want collateral damage when we first had. Uh, we were choosing to, listen, it, it's not helping to go into these countries and do nation building. So we're going to just pull back out and let them. Well, as we pulled back out, what we saw was Al-Qaeda rose in power. So I think I think the, the, the ball isn't. Oh, okay. Hang on there, just a second. We had uh, Chuck Cadell on the phone there, and it looks like we may have a, a drop call or a lost connection here. We'll try to get it back real quick. 
I think the last thing you said there, there was a, a philosophical example from uh, from class in New York about decision making, about how we could have done things differently. I think that was the last thing we said before we got interrupted there. Right. right. Um, yeah, that was a. Uh, I mean, it, it, the, it, a couple of philosophy professors. You know, they they said, "How would things have been different?" And if all of a sudden those guys had had the opportunity to say, twenty-one people had the opportunity to sit there and say listen, we were willing to die for this and because they would have been able to tell their stories from 21 different perspectives. And I think that could have changed the whole discussion. Uh, it, made, it made a, I mean, I, that was the first time I had considered that that is a way to do, if not psychological warfare, it's a way to change opinion by sitting there saying, I'm willing to die to, to make the point that we don't want you there. And I think if I think had that been, if that had been the choice that uh, Osama bin Laden had made and told his guys, okay, turn power back over to him, I think we would have been out of the Middle East long before now. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I would have had I been a part of that discussion in class there. I, w- I would have asked one of the professors. So, so what is there? What do you think about the fact that none of them did that? Uh, that they all went through with it. Nobody had second thoughts. Nobody had any doubts. Nobody wanted to bail out at the last minute. They all went through with it. Uh, 21 out of 21 uh, decided that, yep, this, this was the day they wanted to die. So I, I would have just been curious to hear what their, what their response to that was on a level of philosophy. Um, I, well, we had, I mean, that was part of the discussion. Was they, they didn't do that. They chose not to. And, uh, you, you know, and then, it, and then it, come back, it comes down to the, you know, the, the premise was, were they conditioned, brainwashed? Did, were their belief systems so strong? And because, you know, it's not, as you and I know, it's not natural to kill somebody for the vast majority of us. True. We have to to prepare for that. So what is the preparation to kill others and kill yourself? Um, Are are you capable of rational thought in that moment? Uh, You know, a lot of us look back on things we've done uh, in the past and how we approach things and wonder, how do we get to that? How do we get to that place? That you know, we were willing to act without you know without uh, without thinking about you know the consequences, um, and that's the ultimate that's the ultimate level of not thinking about the consequences or, or you know the cons- It ends the, the second your mission is done, you're finished. Yeah, I guess I would say. Um rationality is a concept. You know, you asked earlier, what does justice mean? I didn't mean to, to skip over that. We, we, we could do several separate uh, broadcasts just on that topic because uh, it's such a big, big topic. But yeah, the, the, so the question of what is, what is, what constitutes rational thought? What is rationality? Um, that can be very different depending on uh, your framework of beliefs. And if you happen to be folks who have a framework of belief wherein that specific act will lead to uh, some type, or you think it will lead to uh, some type of reward or serve a greater purpose, then according to their framework of beliefs, they did act rationally. Uh, although to most of us, we would completely you know, reject that, as, as I do. Uh, I'm simply saying you, know, you, you have to learn and study the way your, your enemies think. And so to them, it's real. And to them, it's rational. And to them, it makes sense. Uh, and so, and their decisions impact you. So, even though we don't agree with it and reject it, we still have to acknowledge that that's what they think. And, and like we learned in, in um, any deployed environment, no matter what you plan, and you know, the enemy gets a vote. Um, they have a vote in what happens, and, and they're not going to consult you <laughs> about it. Well, that, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, and I, and I think in the at least when I was growing up, we had this we had this perception 
that somehow Western thinking, and we're very limited, uh, I might add, uh, that we were superior because our education system was superior, so that if we got into a into a war, we were actually fighting inferior warriors. Now, as you, I mean, I know you're you're very educated on this stuff, and I mean, I learned it in life, and I learned it in studies after that. That when you're we, we go into war with another culture, these cultures are as capable as we are. And when I was in the Navy and, and acting as a referee for war games, and I would see Egyptian and Israeli and Pakistani officers in the same tactical situation I was making similar decisions, it all of a sudden dawned on me that guess what? When these guys are as motivated, as educated, as capable of being warriors and using equipment as I am. So uh, it, it does come down to motivation. It does, you know, uh, you're not you're not fighting somebody who's ignorant. You're fighting somebody who is as motivated, as capable, as educated, and as insightful as you are. And so that made that, that, for me that the, there were some very cathartic moments where I kind of stepped back for a second and say, you know what, I have more in common with these people then I don't, you know, then differences. And I'm always amazed that we can't, somehow or other, we can't find those commonalities to move forward with. And, you know, if you think back to the Cold War, and I know you, you began your career uh, in the Navy under a, under a Cold War framework, because that was still going on then, and, and mine was, it was, that was, end, that had ended just as my career got started. Um, if you think about the Cold War and, and the differing ideologies that we had, you know, we, there was the American capitalism on one side, there was Soviet communism on the other. American academics and, and students and philosophers and thinkers and intellectuals or whatever you want to call them uh, invested a lot of time and effort. Uh, and they devoted considerable resources to publishing and speaking and, and pointing out and analyzing all the flaws of the communist or the Soviet communist system of that ideological framework, so they contributed a lot to that fight. Uh, there was a lot going on uh, besides just the, the military equipment and training and, and funding. There was also an intellectual battle that took place during the Cold War, and, and there was a lot of people who, who invested a lot of time and resources. I don't feel like that ever really happened after 9/11. I don't feel like there was ever really that level of an outpouring of, of intellectual effort to combat the belief system that motivated the 9/11 attackers in the first place. I think for the most part, people just simply dismissed it and said, well, it's wrong. And that's the end of it. We've decided that it's wrong and that's all there is to it. Uh, but our, our adversaries did not decide that it was wrong. They, they still think it's right. And so I still feel like that if of all the failures that, that we've had happen over the past 20 years, maybe that's the biggest one, is that we never got uh, our, our best thinkers and our best our best minds really truly engaged in refuting and in, in refuting and, and destroying the ideology that motivated the 9/11 attackers in the first place. And I guess that's that's still an open issue. I mean, it's it's the ideology is still there today, and I don't know now what we're really doing to combat it. Well, you know, and, and it's funny because I I look I look back on that and I and I wonder if like teenagers, there's a certain part of the brain that isn't developed until you're in your early 20s. So there's no concept of repercussions. Uh, that, that's the first thing. I, I mean, I remember when I was raising teenagers that uh, I went to a seminar and they said, they're not, being, they're not intentionally being disrespectful. They're not intentionally not doing what you ask, but they're physically unable to comprehend the ramifications of their actions. And time moves differently for them because their focus is so different than yours. 
they reminded me that they aren't young. They're not. They're not small adults. They're actually haven't reached that adult portion. That that adult part. Uh, you know, they haven't reached adulthood yet because the brains haven't developed that much. And I think that is. I almost think that there has to be something similar to that. Maybe it's not so much brain development as in life experience that says when you're younger that you you see things more black and white. You don't have as much to lose, so you're willing to risk more. And I think there are probably, in our country and anybody else's country, people that can manipulate that to advance an agenda that they have put a lot of thought into. Uh, and I think, because I mean, every time, I mean, and I'm not saying every time, but a lot of time when I look at these, at these nations that we're having, you know, that, that are where terrorists come out of and things like that, that they're very young nations. And when I say, I don't mean as in, as, as a, they're a young nation, but the people of them tend to be, the huge swaths of the population are younger and so therefore more apt to be more impulsive. Uh, I, I see that here in the United States when we have discussions with people. The younger folks seem to be much quicker to form an opinion that battles fact. And they're not, they're not as open to hearing, to understanding somebody else's view and seeing it from their view and saying, okay, I, I see where you're different on this, but we don't agree. But, uh, you know, we, you can still find something to move forward on. I don't see that with, with younger people anywhere in the world. Yeah, and, and the ideology that gets that gets taught, and that was a part of it. You know, the folks who, who actually flew the, the planes into the towers in the Pentagon were, were what you would what we would call basically middle class. They had education. Some of them had college degrees. I mean, you have to have a, a pretty good degree of, of education and training to operate a commercial aircraft, even if it's for a short period of time. Um, and they and they did that. So they had what we would call uh, at least the, the basic education. And so that that did not prevent them from carrying out a mission that was at complete odds with everything we think an education teaches. And so that's just one of those dilemmas that I feel like the, the best minds of America never really engaged with. I and mean, we never really drew down on the ideology that under that underlied that. And you can and it's not that we don't know what it is. I mean you can trace it back pretty clearly. I mean Syed Kutba in his uh, work in the shade of the Quran was the foundational text that Abdullah Abzam used who taught Osama bin Laden later. So when I mean, we can trace the lineage of the ideology pretty clearly but we never really engaged with it. There was just sort of a dismissal. Now that's that's not that's in the English speaking world. Not quite the same in the Arab speaking world, where there has been some pushback and some uh, some more heated debates and discussions amongst the the Islamic scholars over what this how this could have happened and, and why the ideology underneath it is is actually contrary to Islam. And that's a debate that's still ongoing today. And I hope that our nation will find a way to to engage on that either through diplomatic or other means to to help that spread because that's a battle we have to win if that battle isn't lost then you know down the road the the prospect of, of other attacks similar to 9-11 or although probably on a smaller scale uh, will be greater um, and so that part of the I guess that part of the struggle is is still ongoing because there are plenty of folks not just the Taliban who are still teaching that ideology to young folks as you pointed out and by the time they reach their teenage years, they've already been pretty thoroughly indoctrinated uh, with the worldview that this is the absolute truth and anyone who questions it is, is, is a, an infidel. 
And so that that's still going on in, in many different places uh, around the world. And unfortunately, some of our allies even even support that. And, and, you know, Saudi Arabia is the most obvious example, even though that place itself is, is a very complex society like most are. Um, it's still a part of the equation and, and we can't ignore it. So I, I just feel, you know, down the few, down the road, that's probably going to rear its head again in some form. Oh, I, well, I, I agree with you completely. I think, uh, you know, I mean, we see it here in, in our, our nation of, of how we can influence young people to, to take stances on issues, which, uh, which I think weakens us a lot because what we do is we focus on our differences instead of our commonalities. And I think, you, like, like you said, uh, and we, we see them use faith. We see them use uh, pseudoscience. We see them use all these different methodologies to say, listen, you're, you know, you're young, and once, once a person gets that trust, it's very, very difficult to change that view. And, you know, and I think what we saw was we saw that, uh, that, we, that the and, and education doesn't have a lot to do with it. I mean, it, it's a belief system that's behind the education. Uh, it can be used. Um, you need to get educated in order to carry out the mission. You know, Allah wants you to be a, so you can fly the plane. Um, you know, God wants you to God wants you to to be a great warrior so you can drive out the you know you can drive out the infidels from Jerusalem. I mean, we've seen that throughout history. Uh, you, you know, and, but you know, it, but the thing is, I you know, I was I was in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm, and one of the most cathartic moments in my life happened. When I I was separated for a short time from my group, uh, we had gone into uh, we'd gone into the uh, gold souk in the area, uh, and I had gotten separated when prayer started, afternoon prayer. And here I was, uh, you know, young lieutenant standing there thinking, "Oh my gosh, uh, you know, I'm going to do something wrong, and uh, yeah, I'm going to create an international incident." So I just quietly stood back in the corner of a store until everything was done. Uh, as the calls came from the minarets and things like that. And I was sitting there, and, and after everybody got done, you know, and I said, okay, everybody got rolled their prayer carpets up, and I, and I said, okay, I can start walking around now. And this, uh, I, I learned later, a cleric walked up to me, uh, you know, the turban, the long robes, the, you know, the, the, the well-manicured beard, had a smile on his face. And he leaned forward in, in perfect English, and said, "You seem you seem a bit disturbed." <laughs> I said, "Well, yeah." And he and he said to me, he "said You afraid we're going to cut your head off?" And uh, and I kind of looked at him. And I was I was held breathless for about a second, but you know I, I, I'm fairly quick in those situations. I said, "I said, well, I would be lying if I say the thought had not occurred to me." Well, he laughed and took. Well, it turns out he was the mullah who was in the minaret doing the daily prayer, and. As he and he invited me for coffee, and we there was a little uh, market right there, so we stopped and had coffee. And while we were there for about the next hour, he and I spoke as two human beings, and he actually made me realize something that I intellectually knew, but it, I had never processed. When uh, after we got done talking about growing up, uh, milking he milked goats, I milked cows, growing up on a farm, fathers who were strong-willed, and we laughed and we cut up about that. He said, uh, he said, well, uh, you know, we were, we, of course, we were there to uh, keep Iraq from coming into Saudi Arabia. That's what our goal was, and uh, we started talking about uh, unrest in the Middle East, 
and he brought it up. And the thing that got me was he said, and, and again, intellectually you know these things, but sometimes you don't make the connections. And I, I hadn't anyway. And I said, he said, he said, well, you know, uh, Christians, the Christian faith started with Abraham. The Jewish faith started with Abraham. And the Islam faith started with Ibrahim, which is another name for Abraham. And he's looked at me, smiled, it's all the same religion. Which is, it's just, it's just a different flavor. And, and so I said, what are we fighting about? And the guy reaches over, he touches my hand, and he takes hold of it, and he looks at me with a big smile, and he says, and he goes, isn't that the question we should all be asking? Yeah, no, that that's a great example, and that, that's absolutely true. And, and unfortunately, there are organizations in that part of the world that use the, the religious um, teachings in a political context. And so I think that's where a lot of the conflict comes from. And, you know, you, you can see lots of different examples of it. And, and, you know, you can look at the Israel example and you can see how advanced technology can, can buy you a, a, a degree of security. You, we, can, we can shoot down rockets and missiles that are incoming, but you sort of end up almost living behind a wall. Um, so you start to wonder, you know, what is the price of that security um, when you do it that way? And so there are similarities to the way the Israelis approach that problem than, than, than what we do, especially in the public's mind. Well, we have to have better weapons and better technology and, and more science, and then we, we can't be beaten, which, of course, is not always the truth. So it, it's more complicated than that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how, how that's, you know, we, we still have vested interests in that region. And even after the this phase of the 9-11 operations end, um, that's going to continue and that'll be part of it. You know, how do we how do we engage in that? What do we do in Syria? What do we what's our relationship with Israel look like? And how do we do we because there are allies and how do we help them without harming our own interest? Um, when it comes to no, dealing, I agree, and I think and I think our national policies on uh, global warming, on on fuel consumption, on uh, how to, I think that is going to be a huge. That's going to be a huge factor overall, because what I think a lot of people don't like to think about is we create strategic asset needs. Uh, we create strategic needs as a society. We're a consumer society in America. And so if all of a sudden oil prices go up and uh, lines form and the message becomes that uh, they're trying to starve us out, I think there's a chance that we could we could go back to the Middle East again saying it's a strategic necessity. Uh, I hope that's not the case. Uh, I mean, I see, you know, you, not just the Middle East, but you, I mean, and I know you've thought about this like I have. What we're seeing in China, uh, you know, as, as they come on, as they actually, they've always been a superpower as far as I've been concerned. Even back when I was back in the 80s, I thought they were a superpower. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing them flexing their muscle more and more in the Far East. And so, as we, as our desire to be the world police or or have the American empire is waning, uh, what you know, what I see the potential happening is us overreacting to issues because we fear we're going to be eliminated. And uh, you know, and so what I see is I, I see kind of people manipulating us the way. Uh, manipulating our young people to think a certain way, the same way that uh, we were just talking about uh, people using faith and things like over the Far East manipulating people. Yeah, the, the fear of being defeated or the fear of losing, I think, is sometimes a product of short-term thinking and a lack of strategic patience. 
um, you know, something happens and we, we just have to react to it. And, and oftentimes that's generated from, you know, folks that are that are running for office are already in office because they can make political hay out of it one way or another. And so it gets kind of blown out of proportion. But the, the heat of the moment, because it serves a political expediency that it helps me get reelected, says the people doing it. OK, we're going to make this into a big deal when really it's not. Um, and we, we need to have a little bit more strategic patience and say, so, you know, think, I agree. I, I, I agree. I think that, that and, and you I, hit the nail on the head right there, because one of the one of the brilliant things that you look at Japan over the long haul and also China is strategic patience. They don't think in terms of the next election cycle two years. They think in terms of resolving something over the next 20 years. And you're, I think that is very much lacking for us. I agree with you. Yeah, and, and you know, and I, and I agree. I, I've seen, you know, I understand that China has been more aggressive this year in, in flying into Taiwanese airspace and making threats. Of course, there's, this is also the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party in China. So a lot of that has to do with showmanship surrounding that uh, anniversary. And of course, you know, you, you can never know for sure what someone else's intentions are. Um, what we think may be just bluster could be an actual, they're getting ready to actually do something physically, or they, or we, we may think that they're getting ready to do something physically when it's just bluster. Uh, so we, we can never really tell for sure what, what an adversary is thinking. But if you're a little more patient, uh, you'll find that out, uh, as opposed to just reacting to everything that happens as though, you know, the sky's falling. Um, and, and that's not the case. Um, and I hope that, that our, the folks who make the decisions, especially in terms of our, our federal and national government, will, will, will exercise that. Although I have a very small degree of confidence that that will actually be the case. Well, yeah, and, I, and, you know, and I think one thing that, that's missing is a consistent uh, long-term goal for where our nation wants to be, a strategic plan. Because I... And, you know, unfortunately, we, as our nation, we tend to focus on only the White House as the decision-making uh, uh, decision maker for strategic issues. But the reality is, uh, the legislature is the area where we have the longest. The people stay the longest, and if, it would be great if we could just instead of having you know having our national policy kind of change every, with every administration change, that would be. Uh, that would help us out immensely. I'm not sure we can do that. And I'm sure the rest of the world has gotten used to the fact that, well, all right, we know there's going to be some change no matter what happens. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to have to adjust. Uh, but I mean, again, we live in a very dynamic world. So I guess that's, uh, that's pie in the sky thinking on my part. We all, we all have to deal with that because there's regime change everywhere. Well, but it's a critical point about Congress though, because one of the things we did not do after September 11th was declare war. And I think we should have. And the reason I think we should have is because that would have forced, at the, that level, the national legislatures to clearly outline what our objectives were and to define victory before we started. Absent that, without a declaration of war from Congress, without clear, clearly delineated goals, what we did was we just sort of wandered uh, from administration to administration, from strategy to strategy, goal to goal. Eh, we'll do this, we'll do that. The next administration can do something else. And, you know, the result of that in, in Afghanistan and Iraq was pretty much chaos and, and failure for most of our objectives. Maybe not the narrow military objectives that we went after. I think we were pretty successful in achieving those. But the, the broader goals that we created for ourselves, I don't think there's any doubt we failed. 
And I think those failures could have been avoided had we had a declaration of war, which would have been completely justified, especially after 9-11, because we've just been attacked, you know, and thousands of our citizens are dead. So I don't think anyone in the world would have, would have begrudged us the right to declare war at that point. And it was probably maybe the, the single greatest failure of our Congress that they didn't do that. And, and I hope that the next time before we get into a, a military engagement, whatever it's going to be in the future, we, we make that decision as a nation to either commit to war or stay out of it. Because the piecemeal approach leads to what we had in Afghanistan, which is a lack of strategy, a, uh, a, a uncertainty about goals, and ultimately that, that costs blood and treasure that otherwise we did not have to expend. Well, I agree with you. I think uh, a declaration of war would have, would have created more of a national response and perhaps perhaps given us a stronger strategy. I mean, if we look back at Afghanistan, well, we, it started out with, I forget the first general's name, but then it switched to General McChrystal, and then it switched to General Petraeus. Sure. Because the, you know, the people back, uh, because the guys on the ground over there, uh, I guess, didn't feel, didn't feel supported by the folks back here. So uh, you're right, that could have made it much easier, saying very clear mission, um, and even that doesn't come without even that doesn't come without uh, with, with, without problems. I mean, you know, back in Desert Storm, uh, President Bush achieved the mission goals, and we came out at the same time. We had very it wasn't quite as dramatic as this, uh, but uh, you know, when we pulled out, we pulled out. We said mission accomplished, and we abandoned you know we abandoned many of the Shia supporters uh, at the end of Desert Storm. Uh, and that, you know, that that was that kind of haunted us. I remember that discussion coming up. We went back into Afghanistan, went back into Iraq too. Uh, but um, yeah, there's no easy way. But uh, at least uh, it was different here that uh, the mission goals were, and we didn't, you know, we didn't leave people behind. We didn't leave as many people behind. We didn't leave as much equipment behind. I have no idea if the amount of equipment that I'm seeing reported left behind is, is accurate because. You know, I'm, I'm limited by just what I see on the news and, and unfortunately, on social media. Well, what I've, so, what I've been told by folks who have been there more recently, either in a military capacity or, or from uh, INGOs, which is International Non-Governmental Organization, there's, there's all kinds of NGOs and INGOs in Afghanistan doing lots of charity and relief work. Um, the consensus there seems to be that that equipment you're seeing belonged to the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And that's what the Taliban is parading around, not necessarily stuff that we just forgot to take care of. It's, I think it, yeah, it's... And, well, and you see, that's why I said I, I have to go with just what I see, because that, that's exactly what I thought it might be, is this was stuff that we had, you know, that had gone over them to help fight the battle that they surrendered. But it still goes, yeah. to, the, but it still goes to the main point. I mean, and this, this is something that, that, that George W. Bush said, and, and I think this was just a couple of days after 9-11. And at the time, it really stuck with me, although it took me several years to really understand why. Uh, one of his first speeches after that, this may have been the day after 9-11, when he said, we will make no distinction between terrorists and those who harbor them. I, I think if all the mistakes at the national level, that one was probably the first and most devastating because we needed to make precisely that distinction in order to function and operate effectively in environments like Afghanistan and Iraq. You have to make that distinction. You can't simply look at everyone and say, well, just because they wear a, a turban and have a beard and practice Islam, they're our enemy. That, that's just a very ineffective approach, and I think that really cost us um, operational momentum. It cost us strategic thinking. 
and it just it generated a whole host of difficulties and, and errors that could have been avoided had we known that. So I just hope in the future we take that into account and we, we need to take a much more nuanced approach to dealing with security threats. Whenever the next attack happens, and there will be one, no matter how hard we try, that we can't stop them all. You know, absolute security is impossible. You can't do it. Um, so even with a good effort, there, there's going to be one in the future, and I hope we take more time and exercise not only strategic patience, but also a much more nuanced approach uh, to, to what's actually going on and who the adversary actually is. And that'll be difficult because it's very easy for, for folks in the political arena, regardless of, of their affiliation, conservative, liberal, political, or Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. It's very easy to take a, a quick soundbite and, and turn it into something that's inflammatory to, to whip up your base. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden that nuance is, is out the window. And so I fear that will happen again in the future. Um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I'm like you. I think uh, I don't think we've we've solved the problems. I'm, but I agree with you that I think we're in a new phase. And what I would and in the, in our nation, well, worldwide right now, dealing with this COVID stuff, that is, uh, you know, it's much more probably front burner for us than it is probably in Afghanistan. Uh, but the reality is, and we've we've said we've talked about this, is that. How we, we 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 do influence how other nations see us, but they also influence how we how we see them. And so, I think we have made a call here, which is okay. We're we're not involved anymore, and and it's going to be real interesting to see how they respond to that. Because if we see another attack like we had on nine eleven, or even something smaller, but uh, or several things smaller, like we saw in Spain and in London and in uh, Germany uh, I think what we're gonna I think what's gonna happen is that we're gonna we're gonna get everybody fired up again and we're gonna have people who want to make hay in the short term and we'll be right back in the middle of it again and the other thing to remember is okay I get that the Taliban is back in control but there is no guarantee that their regime is going to last. Um, and, you know, they were fighting amongst themselves uh, previously when the Taliban first took over in the late or mid-90s. And there's every indication that's going to happen again. In fact, the Islamic State attack on the uh, the uh, airport in Kabul, you know, it, it tragically killed 13 Americans, but it killed a lot more Afghans. And that was, a, that was a message to the people of Afghanistan from the Islamic State there saying the Taliban can't protect you from us. And I think the Taliban knows that. So they, they're going to have their hands full uh, trying to run that place because it's very difficult to administer. So what I'm getting at is it's been said that the, resu- the resurgence of the Taliban regime will be a, a boon for recruitment for terrorism, but that's not necessarily true because if they turn out to be absolutely terrible at governing and they don't last very long and they collapse, it will be a far more devastating blow to their ideology and their recruitment than any defeat from us could ever have been. So their ineptness and their incompetence at governing will do more damage to their recruitment efforts and their ideology than any amount of missiles or bombs we have. And that's something we've seen in the Middle East, too, with Hamas, which has underscored the same thing. You know, they're, they're, they get in power and then they're terrible at governing. So they, they, it actually does damage to their long-term uh, reputation. It's not always a victory just whenever a regime like the Taliban takes control. Got to have some strategic patience. We need to wait and see if, if they're going to do themselves in. Uh, in ways that we never could. Well, I agree with you on that. I, the, the proof will be in the pudding for them. What scares me is going to be what kind of what I, what, what I saw Osama bin Laden do over the, and it 
of course, I say what I saw him do, what I interpreted he did based on watching watching how uh, how his organization developed is he made us the problem. He made uh, he, the reason the, the reason they couldn't govern was because the great Satan was undermining them, even when we were pulling back as much as we could. Admitted they were pulling back. So what I'm afraid of is is for them to maintain power. If they find themselves struggling, they're going to try to lay, they're going to try to put the blame on someone else. And unfortunately, I think that that could be the motivation for us to become targets again. If if the conflict spills outside the uh, borders of Afghanistan, you know the Islamic State is not the only group in within those borders that are real, that are ready and already starting to challenge the Taliban regime for power. The old Northern Alliance up in northern Afghanistan has already been active. There's already been armed resistance there against the Taliban regime and the Haqqani network. Despite what they say, they say they're the Taliban. I don't believe that for a minute. The Haqqani network is a drug smuggling network and a crime syndicate, and, and they are some no kidding bad guys. And, and their relationship with the Taliban, you know, is a complicated thing. But I, I don't believe for a minute that they're the loyal adherents that they say they are. So there, there are plenty of other groups like that willing to challenge the Taliban for power. And I think you're going to see that happen uh, over the next six months or year at the most. Uh, so I, I expect the Taliban regime to collapse. I mean, I'm not afraid to go on record and saying that. I don't think they'll last. I think they'll collapse. I think they'll be either taken over by civil war or conflict and, and that'll be the end of them. Or it'll just degenerate into ongoing battles where they say they're in charge, but no one believes them. Um, that's what I think is going to happen. Of course, I don't have a crystal ball. It's just my opinion. It uh, could be completely wrong, as uh, Dennis Piller used to say. But um, that's what I think is going to happen. Yeah, well, I, uh, it, it, it remains to be seen. And, you know, and I would like to think that, uh, that the, the Afghans will come together and, and stabilize their country without our help. And that... Uh, and that they say, okay, we know we don't want the Taliban to come back. Um, and, and just so you know, I think that's a possibility. Uh, they, they've had, you know, they've been living now for two decades under uh, a different, you know, different kind of regime. And if all of a sudden whoever's running, whoever says they're the Taliban right now, if they come in there and, and try to push too hard, uh, what they're going to see, I think, is they'll see the young, the, the younger, more idealistic people uh, may rise up and say, "Listen, we, you know, things were better before you guys were in charge, so we're going to fight." It'll be interesting. It and will. It's, it's a very difficult time, uh, but again, the, my primary fear is that somebody finds a way to sit there and lay this off on us and focus their ire against us again. And, and in the future, you know, I just hope that we realize that we live in a dangerous world. There's always going to be security threats. We do our best uh, in the military to, to defend the country against those threats. Nothing can stop all of them. And I just hope that we will have uh, more strategic patience, be more nuanced, as we said before, and, uh, and, and think things through before we decide we have to go and try to remake the entire world in our image, uh, because that doesn't work. Uh, that that's one of the biggest failures of our effort of the past 20 years. We, we're not going to be able to remake the world in our image. We're not going to turn the world into a place that looks just like the United States. We're going to have to figure out a way uh, to, to live and coexist in a world where there are plenty of other nations and groups and organizations who look and sound nothing like us. Um, you know, the old saying I, I heard in grad school was, uh, you know, diplomacy is two wolves sitting down with a lamb to discuss what's for dinner. And uh, when, when you look at it from, you know, that perspective, 
it makes it a little bit tougher to to swallow some of the sound bites that that nationalists uh, shovel out, whether here in the United States or, or in Europe or, or in Russia or anywhere else, or especially China now, which has been uh, has seen a pretty big growth in that area. Um, rhetoric is rhetoric, and that it's done for a reason, and it doesn't always reflect reality. Um, so we should just be a little more patient, I think. I, I I wanted to wrap it up here. I don't know if you had any final thoughts on where we're going or what's you know what the last twenty years have taught us that we haven't covered already. Yeah, well, you know, you and I, you and I are ideologically different in so many areas, Jason, which is one of the things I love about having discussions with you. We come at it from two very different, uh, two very different angles. But um, yeah, I think uh, I, I, I like I one hundred percent agree with you that as a nation we need to practice more strategic patience, and that. Uh, one thing we do have control over as a nation is we can either choose to trust the people who are making those decisions and not listen to the rhetoric that divides us, but let us encourage our leaders to, to carry out strategic patience, not knee-jerk reactions. So and to do we that, have no control over what Afghanistan or what anybody else is going to do. But we do have we do have more control over the people we want in positions of power who make those strategic decisions, and we should we should we should become informed and understand what the situ- the issues are, and make sure those people are there, and once they're there, trust that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's the key thing, informed, right there. You know, I, I'm sure you have as well. I've had plenty of people when I was in uniform, or even after, say, you know, thanks for your service, and I appreciate that. I've had people buy me lunch without me knowing who they were when I, you know, when I went off base to eat and I was in uniform. I'd ask for the check, and they say it was already taken care of, and they wouldn't tell me who did it. So, you know, we, I appreciate those kind of things. But whenever I, I'd talk to someone who, who said that to me in person who said, thanks for your service, I would always ask, you know, can can you, after the conversation would, you know, go on, I would say, can, can you name one book you've read on, on Iraq or Afghanistan? And I never have gotten an answer on that. So I, I can't emphasize that enough. We can't hold our elected leaders accountable if we as citizens ourselves do not understand the situation abroad. So I, I would encourage folks that, that can, can, to do, can do so to travel abroad, to read and study and learn about the world because it matters. And what we don't know can hurt us. And it certainly has over the past 20 years. And that's something else we can control. How much we know, how much we educate ourselves, how much we learn, how well we're informed, those things are all within our power. Uh, and they're far-reaching. And so I hope folks will do that. I, I agree with you on that one, Jason. Okay. Well, that's that's about all. I, we, we're probably going to be close to about 90 minutes there, so I may edit some of that, uh, which is no big deal. Um, but it's a good discussion. I appreciate you taking the time to have it. Uh, I agree. It's, it's more fun to talk with someone who comes to things from a different background because... I mean, a discussion with someone who agrees with you on everything will last about five minutes. Oh, uh, yep, we agree. On, yep, we agree on everything, so we're done. <laughs> doesn't doesn't really not very satisfying of a discussion, is it? Uh, it just doesn't not the same level of uh, of interest. So no, it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't spur thinking either. No, it does. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I like I love having discussions with you is because we approach things differently, but we really try to bring bring why we feel it to the table. We don't. Even though sometimes we do get snarky with each other, 
uh, we, we try to support our arguments, not go at each other. And that's the key thing. I mean, you know, there's there's times when, you, when you're just talking about issues of life and death or national security that, you know, it's just by definition, it just has to get heated. And sometimes people will get excited and they'll yell or scream or call each other names. I mean, that's, that's just it has to be that way. Uh, but we can't let that get in the way of the larger, you know, decision making process we're responsible for as citizens. We still have that responsibility. And if we let our elected officials get away with murder, they will continue to murder. I, I have no doubt that they will do whatever we let them get away with. Uh, so it's ultimately all back on us as citizens, and, and I hope folks will, especially those the younger generation who grew up with no living memory of 9-11, who are seeing or hearing all this, and, and to them it's, it's a history class or it's something that they didn't experience, um, learn these lessons so that the next time we're better prepared and we respond more effectively, um, because, it, it, because the difference can be measured in, in lives. Well, that's, that's exactly right, uh, because every, every war is measured in lives. That's it. That that's exactly right. Well, listen. Thanks for your time. Hope everything's going great out there in, in Lee County. And uh, you know, I was I was actually thinking about traveling. I was like, well, with COVID being what it is, it's probably not the best idea to be traveling around. So we should do this remotely, um, just just for the sake of being consistent with our, our policies. Uh, but hopefully, we'll get through this, and and uh, the pandemics, all pandemics, eventually end. Hopefully, this one will too sooner rather than later, because um, it's it's starting to have an impact again. But that's a subject for another podcast. <laughs> Hey, thanks you too. I appreciate it. Uh, bye bye. All right, bye. Good to have conversations like that. I appreciate everyone listening. You know, for those who, who don't know, uh, Chuck Cuddell and I have known each other for many years, and most people probably know he, he's a, a lifelong Republican. I'm a lifelong Democrat, but we're both military veterans. And even though we have uh, different opinions and different views on, on some things that are of a political nature, uh, that doesn't mean we can't still have you know civil discussions with each other. And I, I hope we can see some more of that. Uh, not just in Kentucky, but uh, across the country, because I think we need it. So again, thanks for listening, and have a great uh, afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever you may be. Thanks.